Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. The Los Angeles Police Commission reported last week that anti-Asian hate crimes more than doubled in 2020, while the group Stop AAPI Hate documented nearly 3,000 hate incidents nationwide last year. The attacks have been brutal and jarring, and for many Asian Americans, achingly familiar. But alongside the concern and foot patrols formed to protect Asian American neighbors, There's also been the persistent downplaying of the incidents as racist and lack of understanding that they fit into a larger historical pattern. We look at the impact of this next on Forum. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The stories of assault, shunning, and verbal harassment against Asian Americans have continued in the weeks since the brutal and heart-wrenching video surfaced of a fatal attack on an 84-year-old San Francisco man. This after a year marked by sharp increases in anti-Asian attacks. But even with the increased attention the incidents are getting this time, there are also the familiar signs and concerns that racism against Asian Americans will not be taken seriously. We unpack this with Washu, a staff writer at The New Yorker and associate professor of English and director of the American Studies program at Vassar College. His latest piece for The New Yorker is titled The Muddled History of Anti-Asian Violence. Washu, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You start your piece talking about the police killing of a Bay Area man, Kwan Chung Kao, in 1997, who was shouting and waving a stick outside his house in Sonoma County because he was upset about a racist incident against him at a bar earlier that night. And you talk about how when police arrived, they shot him saying he was using the stick in a martial arts fashion or as a ninja fighter when he had no expertise in in martial arts. You were a student uh, at Berkeley at the time. Can you tell me how you reacted to Cow's killing, what what you did? Well, uh, a friend and I procured a microphone, which uh, as students at Berkeley know, isn't that hard to do when you're at Berkeley. And we took to the steps and, you know, we're, we're trying to just let other folks know what had happened. It just seemed like such an egregious sort of crime. Uh, you know, the idea that he was not a particularly physically imposing person, 5'7", often described as, you know, just a pudgy middle-aged man. But I guess in his drunkenness and in, in the way he was waving this stick, um, he, he deemed threatening enough for him to be subdued deadly force by the cops. And I think what really struck me about that incident at the time was just how, you know, it was just sort of these layers of things that had happened to him over the course of this night. Um, He was at a bar. uh, He was regular there. People knew him and liked him. He was, he was generally a pretty mellow uh, customer at this bar. Uh, But, you know, he sort of got into it with another customer. It got somewhat racial uh, and it just seemed to eat at him the rest of the night. Um, And it, 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 isn't necessarily linked to how the police approached him. But, you know, I think at the time and thinking about it now, it just struck me as um, 
you know, this accumulation of things that, that happen to people that uh, don't necessarily fall neatly into a single category, but, but sort of like bridge different categories. Mm, yes. And that's definitely a theme throughout your New Yorker piece. I remember you describing your attempts to get people to care at Cal as neither succinct nor persuasive. And it felt like we were passing a rumor between ourselves. I was so struck by the use of the word rumor. Why did you describe it as rumor? Well, you know, I think one one reason I, I decided to write this piece uh, for last week's uh, for the New Yorker last week was partly thinking back to moments like that 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 it sort of left my memory. I mean, I was sort of making fun of the fact that neither my friend nor I were particularly like powerful orators, and we couldn't really succinctly describe why people should care. Um, and I think the fact that we couldn't also assimilate this incident into you know, like a broader story, maybe that was our own shortcoming, a broader kind of historical narrative, it made it easy to forget that it had ever happened. And so, you know, I think that being being on the steps, people just kind of passing you by, you know, nothing particularly unusual. I feel like on a typical college campus every day, you're being hailed for your attention kind of incessantly. Um, it, it just didn't really feel like we were participating in something that was like historical. It was just kind of this thing that we were into that we were passionate about, but the fact that nobody else was passionate about it wasn't wasn't really that surprising, and, and it made it easy to just kind of, I guess, file away in, in your memory banks. Yeah, it reminded me so much in many ways as a metaphor for how a lot of incidents of anti-Asian racism often get responded to, especially by non-Asian Americans, which is to be ignored. Um, the others is sort of to be downplayed or questioned. And you even mentioned in your piece the sense that even with the videos um, and and right now the increased attention on anti-Asian violence, that within that there's a sense among some Asian Americans that the concerns will never be taken seriously. Yeah, I, th I think that's certainly part of it. And it, it doesn't just apply to you know anti-Asian violence. There's all sorts of different forms of political organizing that um, people of Asian descent in America are engaging in where they probably feel, you know, under-recognized, not quite heard, somewhat invisible. Um, I think with, with the recent string of videos, it was just that the videos were so graphic and so, so horrific that uh, for these videos not to really stoke a response was, was, I think, particularly distressing for folks. I want to actually play a voicemail that we received from listeners. We invited them if they wanted to leave a voicemail or a comment about how they're processing the recent anti-Asian attacks or if they or their family members has have experienced it. And uh, we did get a call from Max in Milbury. My name is Max. I would like to report a case of uh, anti-Asian sentiment against my daughter. She's a 20-year-old young woman. We live in Millbrae, California, and in front of Walgreens in Millbrae, she was going to go into walking to buy something, and a white lady went up to her and screaming, yelling her, you f***ing viper spending ch and she ran off. And my daughter reported this to the cashier in uh, Walgreens, who was a Filipino man, and his response was, it's a free country. That statement alone deterred my daughter from reporting this to the police. She said that there's no use to reporting it to the police department because 
they wouldn't take that kind of uh, verbal assault seriously. Washu, do you hear some threads of what we've been talking about in Max's description of his daughter's experience? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, I feel terrible for Max's daughter. Um, although I would say that a lot of these things have been happening prior to the coronavirus yes. and, you know, prior to Trump, although Trump obviously has uh, catalyzed a lot of this. I think, I think that, you know, 2016, 2020, we just saw a lot of people feel emboldened to say things that they may not have felt comfortable saying before. Um, you know, I think it's important for someone like Max, for his daughter to feel uh, like that, that that experience is sort of recognized in some way, if not through reporting it to law enforcement, at least, you know, reporting it to, you know, AAPI hate or all these various organizations that are, I think, trying to get a, a more accurate and robust picture of what the experience is day to day, because, you know, the, the cashier is probably correct in that a police officer is going to come and because th there's no physical altercation, you know, this is just going to be lost in the files, lost in the bureaucracy. But, you know, it's a powerful, it's powerful to know that these things are happening, that they affect people. And, you know, the more, the more information we get, where this is happening, how, how frequently it's happening, you know, perhaps that's, that's one way to move forward. Right. But the, but also the idea that to equate that with free speech, it, it, it feels so dismissive. And that dismissiveness, I think, feels like part of a much larger pattern here when it comes to trying to describe anti-Asian racism. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, the present moment has really put a lot of stress on that as well, because not only do people in general seem obsessed with free speech and being able to say whatever they want nowadays, but, uh, you know, just this idea that, um, you know, that, that it applies to racist speech as well. So, I feel like the cashier probably wasn't making a pretty fleshed out argument so much as just trying to, to get rid of Max's daughter. <laughs> well, <laughs> I too feel badly that that happened. And I, I know how lasting that sense can be and how important it is for the first person that you tell it to, to be validating to a certain extent. Yeah. Will you attribute some of, um, some of the reaction to, to the category of, of basically Asian American or AAPI itself. You've talked about how talking about Asian American racism sort of assumes this very coherent and shared history and story among Asian Americans, but that's really not the case. Yeah, I think one issue, um, you know, it's not a, it's not a, an, it's not a negative, but I think one thing that the current moment is is forcing us to think about is that our notion of hate crime relies on it being very clear to everyone what the object or who the object of hate is and how that hate is being expressed. And I think that's just a bit more complicated. There's a bit more nuance when you take into account the Asian American experience. It cuts along lines of class, nationality, sort of when and where you enter into the country and sort of how you view yourself. Um, you know, so I think this, I think that there's a lot of possibility too in that narrative being one that is still being fleshed out. It's still being determined. There's still a lot of opportunity to, to tell our story, but you know, that I think that's the, that's just the challenge. A lot of people don't necessarily know that story or understand its intricacy. And you also attribute it to how infrequently the racism against Asian Americans is 
brutal and gruesome. And it makes me think about, um, I mean, we've certainly had incidents of that, uh, for sure, which you can talk a little bit about and, and how those were galvanizing moments. But, but it also makes me wonder about the pitfalls of it needing to be injury, to reach injury or even death, to be able to talk about it as truly racist. Yeah, I think that I think that's what makes the current moment so um, so fascinating in a way is that uh, you know I was really struck by how folks are really getting the message out there in ways that were impossible. You know, when I was a college student, sort of making fun of my inability to to convince anyone of of how important these things were um, in the piece, but also just how the current moment links up to these broader histories. And so, you know, there have been these moments of brutal violence. Uh, I think the most famous one, the one that still kind of holds this, um, uh, that has a sort of like outsized importance within the Asian American community is the killing of Vincent Chin in 1982 by um, these two auto workers. Uh, it remains this moment that, that I think galvanized folks in 1982 and continues to partly because there was a film made about it. And so it's a story that's constantly been told and retold and stayed in circulation. I think that's uh, one important thing is just sort of not letting go of the past and sort of continuing to, to tell those stories and, and build on them. We're talking with Washu, staff writer at The New Yorker. He's also associate professor of English and director of the American Studies program at Vassar College. We're talking about anti-Asian racism, the rise in hate incidents, and how they're being treated both by broader society and Asian Americans themselves. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Washu, a staff writer at The New Yorker. His latest piece for the magazine last week was uh, The Muddled History of Anti-Asian Violence. And we're talking about how incidents of anti-Asian violence are often less understood as fitting into a larger historical pattern of racism and the persistent downplaying of the incidents against Asian Americans as racist as well. Join us, if you'd like, with your stories, your questions. Have you felt this? Uh, have you felt like you are trying to make sense of what's happening around the increase in anti-Asian American attacks and, and been surprised, uh, you know, felt optimistic or disappointed by the reaction that's around you because there is a lot happening right now and it's a lot to make sense of the number to call 866-733-6786 again 866-733-6786 you can get in touch on twitter or facebook at kqed forum or email your questions or comments to forum at kqed.org just before the break, Washu, I was asking you about the pitfalls of it needing to reach injury or even death to talk about it. And you were talking about, of course, the killing of Vincent Chin by auto workers who scapegoated and blamed him for the demise of the auto industry at the time. And, you know, there have been others, of course, even before him that may be less known, especially among uh, the, the violent lynchings of, of Chinese 
people as well. And then, of course, the more recent uh, in 2012, the shooting at the Sikh temple in Wisconsin. But but I do want to get your thoughts on this question of how America understands racism and racial animus in a way that really seems to be centered around violence. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that 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 it's it it really makes visceral and makes immediate and makes sort of um, profoundly felt for everyone where something that seems fairly innocent, right? Like confusing someone as a foreigner or um, overlooking them. Um, that's, there's sort of a direct line from considering someone foreign and considering someone an other and that person becoming a target of violence. It, it doesn't always work that way. And, and more often than not, it doesn't. It just sort of stays at the level of rhetoric or discourse. Uh, you know, it's no less violent when it's felt, you know, like the, the caller earlier um, talking about his daughter. Um, and yet it, it often requires escalation to violence or something just graphic in order to actually move people. Um, I think one of the challenges is just that the racism that's sort of specific to at least, you know, like a certain segment of Asian Americans often seems relatively benign compared to, you know, if you study the history of slavery and understand lynchings and, and um, you know, servitude and whatnot. Um, and so I think that that complicates things greatly. Yes. And well, Myron writes, so I went to get din with my friend and we were walking in the mission, minding our own business when a guy walked around us. Maybe he thought we were taking up his space or whatever, but he started staring at us and then called us Chinese virus. I was listening to a phone call, ironically, about how to combat anti-Asian racism and talking to my friend at the same time. But after he said that, I started running after him on my bike. I stopped going after him because I didn't want to ditch my friend. I'll be honest, I wanted to call him a derogatory name back, but I bit my tongue. I didn't want to stoop down to his level. Besides, I felt empowered by the discussion we were having on how to handle this on a broader scale. I'd rather contribute to that instead of wasting my time on this guy. I think what Myron's describing gets at a couple of things. Like it's it's not, you know, as blatant or overt, though I think this is pretty pretty overt stills, but it's not, it doesn't rise necessarily to the level of injury as we were just talking about. But I'm also struck by what Myron was saying in that he felt empowered by the discussion we were having on how to handle this on a broader scale. And I, and I wondered, Washu, if you feel like, if you feel like the conversation is changing, that it's gotten better, that, um, that it is more empowering right now. That's a great question. Um, you know, I, I draw a lot of inspiration or just hope from people who are actually doing the work. Like as a as a journalist, as a scholar, I feel like I'm I'm just kind of learning what other people are doing and trying to amplify or or elevate things that I find particularly useful. And I think that you know there is this trap nowadays where conversation just leads to more conversation. I mean, the whole point of the internet is just that we can keep talking about stuff. Um, and yet I feel like there, there do seem to be some kind of clear lines or clear directions. Um, and I, I think that's really cool that Myron felt like instead of confronting this guy who seems to be uh, not particularly informed and per perhaps not like a productive person I would talk with, Myron continued talking to, um, to their friend and, and tried to figure out, you know, what can we do as a community? How can we organize? What are some, some steps we can take collectively? Because I think, Ultimately, regardless of how 
whether or not you feel part of the Asian community, um, it is sort of collective action or a, a sense of belonging or community that will hopefully help move things forward, whatever that means to you. Well, I thank Myron for sharing that, and I'm sorry that happened to him. And I, I want to ask you, Washu, like, how has it been for you personally as you have, I mean, this past year, there's been an increase in reported incidents of anti-Asian hate. Uh, you know, in my social media feeds, there are a lot of people who are reaching out and asking other Asian Americans how they're doing with all of this. And just on a personal level, how has it been for you, Washu? Um, I mean, I, I can't really speak from deep experience. I haven't, I, I wouldn't say I've been outside a ton this past year. So why not? Um, I mean, mostly just because of uh, pandemic and whatnot. But, uh, you know, there were certainly these moments, um, maybe last April, where particularly with like curfews and whatnot, uh, there was a sense of like, well, is, is someone going to start yelling me if I just go outside? Um, but, you know, generally, I think when you write things, people email you their thoughts. The thoughts have gotten a slightly more unhinged at times um, when, it, when it comes to things like Asian Americans and race. But uh, it hasn't actually been that that different for me, I have to say. You mean from what you've experienced in the past? Yeah, I mean, it, it has been interesting, you know, for example, after I, I published this piece, uh, I got an email from someone, and I, I actually couldn't quite understand what their politics were. But it sort of emerged that they were kind of much more right wing than I am. And they were saying, well, Asians need to understand that, like, the Republicans, like, we have your back. And, you know, uh, uh, pro-Trump folks are being dehumanized just like you are, and, and, and we need to band together. And I just find, I found that to be like not particularly convincing, but that's not really a response I would have expected to get, you know, a couple years ago. Um, it does feel as though this, the amount of conversation around this is, is um, I don't know, it, people outside of the community are, are picking up on it in ways that I hadn't really thought possible. Huh, that's so interesting. It reminds me of a New York, a New York Times piece that was just written by Jay Caspian Kang, where he actually raises this question of whether or not the way Asian Americans, especially on the left, have handled the situation might come off as out of touch to people who are more, uh, you know, more interested in a narrative that's much simpler, that's saying, you know, we really need to take care of our community and what's happening in our community and call it out for what it really is and not worry so much about offending people. Did yeah, you read I, that piece? I'm curious what you thought of it. I did. Um, Jay's, Jay's a friend and a colleague, and I, was, I really agreed with that aspect of the piece. Um, he and I have both done reporting on, say, like affirmative action and, and issues in public education. And it does seem as though the openness of this conversation around like being Asian in America you can either kind of draw on a more, you know, like historically rooted 60s, third world liberation front, uh, kind of Asian American as political solidarity version of the identity that I think someone like someone like me going, going to college at a place like Berkeley, that's how I understood the foundation for Asian American identity. But, you know, there's certainly a lot of conversations now happening, particularly on... Um, 
you know, like Chinese social media or Korean social media that, that aren't necessarily being picked up on by um, mainstream media, where people are interpreting civil rights or interpreting sort of grievance in a very different way than how it's historically worked. Um, so, you know, going back to Myron's situation before, I feel like there is actually a robust conversation going on across the political spectrum. And it sort of remains to be seen what results from that. But it is sort of this interesting time when people across the spectrum are trying to, you know, like reinvigorate or re-energize what this Asian American identity could be. Well, let me go to caller Linda in Palo Alto. Hi, Linda. Join us. Yes, good morning. Uh, I have a comment and then a question. The comment is is that shortly after the war, World War II, and for quite several years, they actually had public service spots on TV, broadcasting, and on radio to stimulate the idea, no hate, do not convey your, um, your sentiments in public because everybody has the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So that's one thing, public service statements that would come on the air. That was one thing that are not, that's not happening today. I don't, I haven't heard that at all. I don't own a TV, but I haven't heard anything like that. And it needs to be broadcast. One, that's a comment. Two, question, why cannot regulation be put to um, maybe fine people who confront individuals, either a person or, or a group of people, who confront individuals and uh, in a way that with hate speech, whatever, because uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit, pursuit of happiness is just as equal a right as free speech. And when that's interfered with, that seems to me they've broken a law. Linda, thanks for your comments. Washu, okay. thank you. Appreciate it. Your reaction? I, I really appreciate that. Um, you know, I think that it's just a very, it's, it's sort of hard to imagine a, a specific form of public address that everyone would, would sort of take in good faith at the same time. I mean, I too remember uh, those kinds of PSAs and, and sort of like things that you would see on the news, right, that, that would promote a sense of um, civic identity and civic well-being. Uh, you know, I do feel like not to get too meta or, 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 or stray from the core issue, but I mean, I think there is a larger issue here with the breakdown of, um, you know, for example, like small town newspapers or, or even major newspapers. So a place like the Bay Area used to have, you know, five or six uh, very healthy and um, like competitive newspapers. And the fact that we don't really have that kind of robust news ecosystem now, I think makes it harder for people to understand their neighbors, to understand the changes going on in their backyard. Um, so, you know, I do think that there is a sort of media issue here um, in, in terms of people just being able to reckon with one another, which is sort of at root of what Linda was saying. Um, you know, I would find it really fascinating and intriguing if, if we were able to kind of prosecute hate speech in the same way that hate crimes are prosecuted, but hate crimes are so hard to, to prove. Um, you know, I think that I think that there would be a lot of, um, you know, free speech activism around the idea of criminalizing um, racist epithets, even though, you know, I, I certainly share that, share that sentiment. And, you know, it happens in other countries. They, you know, you, you, there's certain things you can't say, but, you know, I think in America, there's a, a sort of, um, 
obsession with with the First Amendment that that would um, block that. I don't think it's too meta to get into what you were describing, actually, in terms of just the breakdown of local coverage. Um, also, because I think you're getting at broader issues, right? broader systemic issues. And, and thinking back to what you were describing about having somebody who is a Trump supporter saying basically that that there should be an alliance there as a result of this, it really raises the question for me, for people who are invested in maintaining the status quo, you, you've written about this. Asian Americans have been such a useful wedge to use against other groups with, of course, the model minority myth, as we know, which obscures poverty among Asian American ethnic groups and so on. Do you think that also plays a role in just this inability to really have Asian American racism take hold as as a real and egregious uh, and pervasive thing? You know, you brought up the model minority. I mean, I think it's something that, I think it's something that's particularly um, aggravating to like middle class folks or sort of like people climbing the corporate ladder, like that that you're sort of not being seen for who you want to be seen, how you want to be seen. Um, and I think in general, the model minority myth does actually, you know, it is one of these benign stereotypes it, it, at an immediate surface. level. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> I think a lot of folks in the 70s very crudely called it a form of like racist love, right? Just this idea that the society, um, the sort of white supremacist society values you, but only because you're sort of upholding the values of that society in a way that can be used as a cudgel against other groups. Uh, you know, within the stereotype, obviously it obscures a lot of like, like mental health issues in the community. And as you just, as you just pointed out, like it really flattens out the diversity and sort of like the the range of, of needs within the community. Um, yet it also just speaks to how flexible Asians in America have been since, you know, say the, the 1840s. Like in the 1840s, Chinese immigrants come to the United States. They're seen as uh, disposable labor, cheap, uh, subhuman to some extent. And then by the 1950s, Chinese American immigrants are seen as a model minority, like superhuman. And so the fact that you could kind of go up and down that sliding scale um, speaks to how difficult it is to sort of pin down exactly what racism against this group would look like. You've described Asian Americans, at least for the politically powerful, as as a kind of movable chess piece, which was a description that I was struck by. Can you explain what you meant by that or what you mean by that? Um, yeah, I think at the time I was, I was really interested in, um, there, there was just a lot of, um, uh, reportage and a lot of interest in political circles around Asian Americans, um, coming into the 2020 election and beyond because as immigration patterns, if immigration patterns hold, a lot of Asian Americans are either moving directly to suburbs and swing states, or there's like slowly moving to those suburbs. But basically the, the population concentration of Asian Americans is no longer just in you know, the Bay Area and New York City. It's in uh, Nevada, Georgia, North Carolina, states that will, are, are much more contested electorally. And so uh, last summer, I reported this piece for The New Yorker around um, sort of Asian Americans in politics. And, and I think one of the enduring themes that came out, whether people were talking about the 1950s, 1970s, or right now, is that 
neither party had really um, um, captured Asian Americans as a voting bloc. Um, Asian Americans do tend as a group to lean towards Democrats, but it still feels very much in play, um, even though uh, uh, for, for a variety of other reasons. And so I think when I was talking about the movable chess piece, it's sort of like they've never really been a significant enough portion of the, of the population to swing, say, like a presidential election. But increasingly, Asian Americans are very important in uh, county, city, and state elections. And so both parties seem to have, have absorbed that and, and are sort of trying to figure out how to work with that. Yes. It's interesting, though, as you talk about, you know, during bad times, like after World War II and the collapse or the collapse of the auto industry in the 80s, Asian Americans are scapegoats, again, to some sense, culturally with the pandemic. Now they are. But that uh, maybe things are changing as more Asian Americans form a critical mass as a voting group and shape national conversations, as you say. We're talking with Washu about anti-Asian racism and the rise in hate incidents against Asian Americans, how it's being discussed, handled, and what's behind that, and the impact that it's having, both on Washu and on you, our listeners. You can join the conversation, 866-733-6786. Email us, forum at kqed.org, or get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. I'm Mina Kim. More after the break. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Wa Shu, staff writer at The New Yorker. He's also associate professor of English and director of the American Studies Program at Vassar College. His latest piece for The New Yorker is The Muddled History of Anti-Asian Violence. And I want to invite your listeners to share how you're trying to make sense of the increase in anti-Asian American attacks. Have you or your family experienced anti-Asian racism? Give us a call, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED forum. Email us forum at kqed.org. And let me go to Tan in Oakland. Hi, Tan. Join us. Hi, Nina. Thanks so much for having this conversation. And I really appreciate you're having Washu on. Uh, I'm a big fan of your writing, Washu. So it's great to have a chance to talk to you. Um, Thank you so I much. Wanted to, I wanted to say, first of all, uh, I am a white person uh, and I am married to a, an Asian immigrant. And um, we have a, a baby on the way who will be um, Asian of Asian ethnicity. And so that's just how I position myself in this conversation. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, um, you made a comment earlier, Washu, about a sort of a, a, an identity that was born out of the 60s that you were very much identified with going to Berkeley in the 90s that was very much sort of liberation focused and identified as a member of a kind of a liberation movement. And you saw that as one aspect of a prevailing Asian American identity, certainly in the aftermath of World War II and internment camps and 
things like that. And, and then you said there were these other emerging identities that you were seeing, but I didn't hear you talk about those. And I was hoping that you could speak about them a little bit. And then I also just wanted to answer, Mina, your comment about like how we're responding to these um, moments. I took a, um, a workshop with an organization called Hollaback on how to not just be a bystander when you actually see anti-Asian violence or, or violent language being perpetrated. I found it very helpful, and I just wanted to kind of recommend that and also mm. invite other people and ask other people for active, specific things that they might have already done or be engaged in to try to be in response to this moment. Thanks and so much. Thanks. And Washu, not sure if you uh, wanted to add to what Tan was asking you sure. earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thanks. So, thanks so much for that question. Um, I could have been a bit clearer. So the very notion of the Asian American is a fairly modern invention. Um, you know, it was basically college students and activists and community organizers in the late 60s who coined the term Asian American. Prior to that, um, there was no actual kind of politically oriented uh, name for this group. It was just sort of Orientals or Celestials or all sorts of names that were being rejected. And so it, that's not really a history I think most Americans know. I think even among Asian Americans, we tend to think it's just sort of like a category that we've inherited from the census or that it's just been this inter eternal thing. But it was actually an identity that people chose and then uh, tried to meaningfully unpack through their uh, community work, uh, scholarship, writing, and whatnot. Um, and so what I meant to say before was that that's sort of a tradition that I've always found to be really powerful. Like I find history to be very humbling as a guide for where we can go, even if in the past people didn't go there. And so for me to realize that that's where this term came from and where, uh, and that there was, there was a sort of like political basis to it uh, was useful. However, I don't think uh, all people who are organizing as Asian Americans necessarily understand that history, nor, nor frankly care. And, and I think that that's, you know, that's, that's perfectly fine as well. But um, I think what's going on is there, there are other forms of kind of civil rights organizing within Asian immigrant communities, particularly around issues like affirmative action or access to, to public schools that draw on the language of civil rights but don't necessarily see it um, as this space of like, not only pan-ethnic solidarity, but also like within mm. a broader framework of multiracial justice. Um, and, you know, a lot of folks, for example, are um, immigrating at a different class status or their priorities are very different, say, than folks who were organizing in working class Chinatown in the 1960s and 70s. Well, Tan, thanks for the question. And just on Tan's note about um, response and groups trying to figure out ways to speak up, Hugo writes, as a non-Asian, I've shockingly, I've shockingly heard anti-Asian rhetoric. When I've heard it, I make sure I speak up against it when it occurs. It is up to us non-Asians to stop these ugly acts in a smart way, of course. Linda writes, I'm the executive director of Impact Bay Area. As someone who is AAPI and leads a violence prevention organization, this hits home for me. We teach boundary setting, bystander intervention, and self-defense. 
We have heard from so many people in our community that people really want to stand up to hateful language and abuse and just need more confidence and skills to interrupt. We've been offering classes that give folks the opportunity to practice speaking up under adrenaline, but we encourage people generally just to practice managing their own adrenaline in these situations and practice in a safe place some things that you might feel comfortable saying. Washu, there's another piece of your article that I wanted to ask you about, which is a point that you made about the difficulty with what to do next for a lot of Asian Americans. And at one point you say, beyond pressing for media coverage, the demands around what to do next were sometimes contradictory. Why did this stand out to you? Um, yeah, I I don't know why it stood out to me. Um, I, you know, I'm going to be the first person to say, I don't, I don't have the answers. Like I, I'm someone who's informed by history and sort of the work I've done, but I don't necessarily, I, I mainly trust people who are actually doing this work on the ground. So, you know, um, there's this really great piece in Oakland side by, um, Momo Chang and Darwin Mon Graham, uh, about a lot of the organizing efforts and community outreach within Oakland Chinatown. And I was really heartened to see a lot of those efforts. Um, at the same time, a lot of those efforts were much harder to um, boil down or distill to um, um, a really portable message, you know, because a lot of it was about community empowerment and uh, returning uh, resources uh, around public safety to the cities and to these communities. Um, and so I think, I think what I was drawn to was just sort of the ways in which people were getting their message out there and sort of ways in which those messages were, weren't always representing the, um, the um, sort of the range of things that are actually happening already and things that, that, that could happen in the future. Mm. But you write, in the cases of the San Francisco and Oakland attacks, some officials and even locally, local community members questioned whether these attacks were random rather than racially motivated. Calls for more protection in Asian neighborhoods struck critics of police brutality as the wrong answer. Uh, you talked about several other things, even calls to center and protect Asian elders drew criticism for playing into respectability politics. And I guess what it all made me think about was do you feel like we're tying ourselves up in knots trying to make sure it's clear, for example, we're not anti-Black or anti-police, but also not advocating increased policing in response to the attacks in parts of the Bay Area, that we know not all attacks are hate crimes, but also that there have been a lot of attacks against us this past year that have been racist? These, these messages, these efforts are all for very, very good reasons. But at the same time, does it feel like, once again, we might not be taking care of ourselves. Um, what do you mean by taking care of ourselves? What I mean is, is able to, you know, Stephen Yun said this in like a New York Times piece in, in an interview after about his movie, Minari, where he said Asian Americans, something along the lines of Asian Americans are so worried about everybody else, but nobody's worried about us. Right, right. That's what struck me about it. In terms of, yeah. yeah, what the community needs to do right now in terms of building strength. Yeah, I feel that. I think, I think that, you know, there is something, it sounds like what you're sort of hinting at is that there's something a bit, um, uh, like it's, it's becoming about just how we're talking about something rather than what we could actually do about that thing. Yeah, and, and what it really is and what effect it really truly has. And and possibly yeah. what it can add to race discourse in America, which, as we have seen, is still very, 
very crude and misunderstood in a lot of ways, especially if you are not part of the black-white binary. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think that I, under, I understand what you mean. I, I think there is something about the nature of the conversation right now, which just sort of propagates more and more like cleavages within that conversation that can be a bit frustrating. But at the same time, I think it's because we kind of need to have these conversations, right? So on one hand, we have incidents where people are being assaulted and called racial slurs, which seem like just straight up hate crimes, right? On the other hand, you know, you have cases like Angelo Quinto or Christian Hall, which I think, uh, and, and those, these are two people who were killed in police custody while having extreme mental episodes. And does, whether or not that represents the same kind of, you know, hate or racism as the, the previous thing I just mentioned, I think that's a question that you sort of need to answer in order to figure out like how to organize uh, where where we can find alliances. Uh, those incidents actually, I think, help would help educate a lot of Asian immigrants or Asian Americans around sort of Black Lives Matter and sort of what the priorities there mm -hmm. are as well um, around uh, police brutality and sort of whether or not you actually feel protected by, by all the systems that are, are meant to protect you. So, you know, there is something I think that, that can feel a little pedantic about figuring out like, is it a wave? Is it not a wave? Is it hate? Is it not hate? But, you know, I think these are actually conversations that, that we sort of need to have and figure out kind of, uh, and on the other side of these conversations, hopefully it's not just one movement. It's like multiple movements that are yes. actually moving toward, um, you know, a horizon of justice. Yeah. Let me go to Modesto in Vallejo. Join us. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, yeah, I just wanted to remind people that as far as Asians are concerned, the West, that is California, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, that's our South. This is where we face the most um, hostility and racism over the years. I mean, from the 1800s, um, right up to, you know, the 1930s, that's where pe Asian people have been lynched and, and killed. I mean, as, as, uh, I'm Filipino and I, I, I remember, uh, or heard about the, uh, Watsonville riots mm. in the 1930s, which is where yeah. white, um, farmers and farm workers attacked a, uh, Filipino farm worker settlement and killed the people, uh, killed at least one person there, shot it, shot them up. And, and it just, I just want to bring that out that, you know, most people, when they think about racism, they think of the South and that's mostly because of, you know, black race, uh, racism towards blacks. But historically our South where we are attacked most often is here at, in the West, mm. and we still face it. I mean, as recently, a, a Filipino man was killed by the police in the same way that George Floyd was killed. You yes. know, a knee, a knee on his neck. So I just wanted yep. to bring that up, and that that uh, uh, for a lot of uh, Asians and non-Asians, they need to know that this is the center of anti-Asian. Uh, you know, the West is the center of anti-Asian. Um, Sentiment. Modesto, thanks. It's such an interesting way to think about it. And also, uh, you underscored what, what uh, Washu was bringing up earlier about the police killing of Angelo Quinto. Um, your reaction, Washu, to what Modesto is saying? You know, I, I, um, I, I mean, I, I agree in that there's, 
certainly this legacy of violence that seems concentrated along the Western states dating back to the 1840s. And it's, it's touched a range of different people. He mentioned Filipinos and the Watson riots, um, the Chinese, Japanese internment was concentrated along the Western states. Uh, you know, there's definitely a, a way in which California is the place where I think a lot of Asian Americans feel most comfortable just in terms of population density. And yet, you know, this history is still living and this history is still present. And I think it's important. I mean, it, now I'm going to definitely sound like a college professor, but it's definitely important just to remember that these things happened and that we're not alone and that um, people have tried to imagine a better world in the past and that it's sort of incumbent upon us to, to pick up on that and continue doing that ourselves. And again, we're talking with Washu, staff writer at The New Yorker, associate professor of English and director of the American Studies program at Vassar. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Well, Debbie at KQED writes, I haven't had any incidents recently, but I used to get them all the time when I would either take the bus or walk from the 16th and Mission BART stop to KQED. A couple years ago on that walk, I had someone scream at me saying what I thought was, go back to bed, you don't belong here. I found out later from a friend who was with me that they actually said, go back to Japan, you don't belong here. And another time someone mocked an Asian language and said, what, you don't speak English? Uh, this listener, Guy, writes, unfortunately, no matter how long you are here in the United States, Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders, Middle Easterners, and Latinos are not Americans. A listener tweets, do you have statistics indicating if there has been a rise in similar attacks outside of the Asian community? It would help to put the problem into context. Also, have any of the violent attacks recently been clearly racially motivated? I worry the word racist is losing meaning. Interesting questions, because that is the, the wrestling right now, right, Washu? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, uh, as far as my understanding is, there is a sort of market increase of reported incidents within Asian American community over the past couple of years relative to other groups. That also seems to be the result of uh, more comfort among folks to actually report these things. So it's it's sort of unclear the significance of that rise because you know as these calls are bearing out too perhaps people in the past just didn't really know how to report or, or register these kinds of things um but yeah i mean i also think that 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 sort of sad statement before or or the lament about how um certain immigrant groups would just always seem foreign is is troubling and it's probably also like somewhat true right just that there's always a way in which um one may, may not feel part of um, this American project, right? Mm -hmm. And it'll be interesting moving forward just because I think a lot of the, a lot of us who are from countries that are sort of, in, that are legible to Americans may, may continue to feel that pressure, right? As uh, geopolitics or, or things like yes. um, things heat up, so. Yes, let me go to Gabriel in Oakland. Hi, Gabriel. Hi, Dan, uh, hi, Ms. Kim. Uh, well, the statement I'd like to make is I've lived in Oakland for over 15 years, and uh, I've been a victim of anti-Asian, spe uh, specifically um, Korean, anti-Asian violence, uh, robbery, uh, street robbery. Uh, in my neighborhood where I live, which is near Lake Merritt, there's a lot of uh, first-generation Asian speakers or Asian people here who don't uh, who don't. Uh, speak English very well. I feel that they don't, uh, they're not comfortable dealing with the police and maybe they've had negative experiences in their home countries. Uh, and they've been targeted by uh, 
young people who are disadvantaged. Uh, in this neighborhood, it's primarily African-American uh, because of the belief they have money at home, uh, which they may or may not. Uh, oftentimes, they have gold, jewelry, uh, uh, and they've also targeted uh, undocumented uh, immigrants because they're day laborers and they think they won't go to the police. And I think that this is being minimized. It occurs. It's, it's a fact. And uh, I think that the community needs to look to itself for protection and answers. Yes. Uh, well, Gabriel, thanks. And, and again, underscoring the point about minimization. Washu, we have less than a minute left. There was a line that actually um, Ann Chang wrote in a New York Times piece where she talked about the sort of in-between spaces that Asian Americans inhabit and, and the black-white binary in many other ways that their experiences are minimized or hard to really articulate. But she also said something quite hopeful where she said that there is a power in being able to recognize our struggles as, as the result of paradox we live in rather than seeing them as purely private failings. And if, at the very least, I feel like that's happening. <laughs> I totally agree. And I share Anne's sense of uh, hopefulness, just that uh, being in between me means you're not in a fixed position. And there's a lot of power there if you understand your history and can use that to guide you. Well, thanks to Grace One and Susan Britton for producing today's segment. And Wash, who really appreciated having your thoughts today. I'm Mina Kim. This is Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.